Welcome, everyone, to the Written in Blood History Podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I've heard that one of the most annoying things in the world is to watch a historical movie with a history buff. They'll, of course, point out all of the inaccuracies. When I started reading about Butch Cassidy, I fully expected the Paul Newman and Robert Redford film to be rife with these inaccuracies. And I was pleasantly surprised by its accuracy, especially in depicting the personalities of Butch and Sundance. If you've seen the film, there'll be some things you recognize, and definitely some things you won't, in this episode. If you haven't seen the film, it's awesome, and you should watch it. But after you listen to my show, of course. The image of the cowboy is truly American mythology. For all the romance they receive in the movies, even still today, it's important to remember that a lot of these guys were cold-blooded killers. But towards the end of this era, the man we are looking into today... Although an outlaw, he was far more than that. And so today, we'll discover the man behind the myth in Butch Cassidy, Honor Among Thieves. In 1906, in Bolivia, South America, Clement Rolla Glass had a problem. He needed a man who he could trust to buy and handle livestock that could be supplied to the Concordia tin mine to haul the raw ingots down the 16,000 feet of the Santa Vela Cruz Mountains. And, as fortune would have it, the right man for the job made his acquaintance. The man's name was Santiago Maxwell, who, despite the name, was obviously American, like Clement. Glass offered Santiago $150 a month plus room and board, and it was the best hire he'd ever made. His new employee had a keen eye for the best mules for procurement, and he always got them for incredible prices. Glass was also impressed by Santiago's strict attention to accountability of every penny given to him for his expenses. And Santiago made such an impression on Glass that he was promoted to guarding and escorting the payroll cart that often carried more than $100,000 to the miners on payday. When Santiago asked Glass to hire his quiet friend Enrique as an additional payroll guard and personally vouched for him, Glass gladly hired on this friend of Santiago. Enrique, despite his name, like Santiago, was also clearly American. Soon Santiago and Enrique befriended Glass's chief engineer Percy Siebert, and as the four men got to know each other, Siebert became distinctly aware of Enrique's unrivaled ability to handle a six-shooter. Something about the man just exuded a deadly expertise. Of Santiago, Siebert remembers him being a riot to hang out with. He was always pleasant and charming to anyone in his vicinity, and Santiago loved kids. He always kept his pockets full of candy for the little Bolivian children wandering the streets. Siebert often entertained the men for Sunday dinner with his family and noted that Santiago never sat with his back to a window or a door. Often, he would be seen glancing out across the valley outside. On one of these nights at the Siebert residence, with music playing on the gramophone, Santiago and Clement Rolla Glass were in a fierce debate about which was the better weapon, the Winchester rifle or the Colt 45 six-shooter. Finally, sick of debate, Santiago jumped to his feet and looked at Enrique, and he said, Let's show him, kid. Enrique stood up from his seat, removed his six-shooter from leather, spun the chamber, and answered, Let's go, Butch. The pair walked outside, carrying empty liquor bottles, followed by Siebert and Clement Glass. 
and at once both threw two bottles up in the air each. Siebert recounts what he saw next. Quote, I never saw anything like it. I never saw two guns drawn faster, and I was with men skilled in firearms all my life. Before I knew it, the Colts were in their hands and they were shooting. The four bottles crashed in splinters. They repeated this trick several times. Sometimes Butch missed, but the kid always hit the falling targets. However, against Mr. Glass, they weren't too good at firing at fixed targets. But as Butch said, I guess we're better when our targets are moving. End quote. Percy Siebert and Clement Rolla Glass knew these were not ordinary Americans looking for work in Bolivia. They were obviously men with a past. Men who did not want to be found. They were, in fact, none other than two of the most famous outlaws who ever lived, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The year 1866 was a precarious year for the United States. The Civil War had just ended two years ago, and the country was still figuring out how to recover from that bloodbath capped off with a presidential assassination. Cholera was sweeping across the continent, adding to this national anxiety. The Union and Pacific Railroad companies were trying to figure out how to connect the coast of the massive country with the Iron Horse. Luckily, Alfred Nobel, for whom the Nobel Peace Prize was named, had recently invented dynamite, which proved a safe alternative to using nitroglycerin for blasting through the Rockies. Also, in 1866, the first professional baseball club was established, the first skating rink was built, and the Winchester Rifle Company had just released the 44 caliber model 1866 rifle. Recently, unemployed Civil War veterans from both sides headed west to find gold and a new life, and nearly every businessman east of the Mississippi was looking west to the untapped, vast profits of the western boom country. But another group of people looking for a fresh start had beaten the rest of the country there, and they were in the process of building an empire. The Mormons, and Utah was their kingdom. And it was there, in 1866, on April 13th, when Robert Leroy Parker was born. But we know him today as Butch Cassidy. Robert's grandfather was a weaver by trade in England, but was recruited into Mormonism by a worldwide missionary effort. And so he moved his family to America and walked the 1,300 miles alongside his family in a covered wagon across the Great Plains to establish a new paradise. The Mormons literally built what is known today as Salt Lake City out of nothing. They irrigated the desert, they built the infrastructure, and they populated the community in record time thanks to their custom of polygamy. They also wisely made good friends with the Shoshone Indians who they shared the area with. Robert Parker's father, Maximilian, married Anne Campbell Gillies, and by all accounts stayed monogamous as they began raising their children. Maximilian supported his family as a horseback mail carrier for the small town of Beaver, and in bringing the mail to Beaver, Maximilian often had to evade the deadly arrows of the Ute Indian warriors. When Robert was 13, his father Maximilian purchased 160 acres outside Circaville, Utah, to start their family ranch. Robert was imbued with a tremendous work ethic and a positive attitude. He pleasantly handled every chore on the ranch that his father gave him, but he developed a true passion for animal handling. He accumulated something of a menagerie of pets around the ranch, including a wild magpie that he taught to say hello. He also had rabbits and pigeons and chipmunks, and each one had a name. He was the oldest child in his home, and he thoroughly enjoyed playing with his younger siblings. One game was setting up carts for the goats to carry the kids around in a mock chariot race. On family evenings, when Robert's father was home from work, he would play the harmonica to entertain the whole family, and he would surprise his mother by waltzing with her and then picking her up and placing her on the dining room table, beckoning the younglings to come on and crown their queen of the household. And as he grew, he followed in his father's habit of not attending Sunday services. His sister recounts, quote, Bob wasn't a willing attender. If he could find some chore, any chore, that needed his attention, he stayed home to take care of it. Any excuse was convenient. End quote. With age and muscle came the responsibility of working with the full-grown horses. Robert adored the horses, and he groomed them, he fed them, he doctored them, he learned everything there was to know about them. He became something of a horse whisperer. Soon, the young man, who was Robert Leroy Parker, became locally famous for being able to effortlessly approach and tame wild stallions. This intuitive talent for wild horses made Robert a desired hand as a cowboy at other ranches. These jobs he willingly took so that he could bring money back to his struggling family. It was around this time that Robert had his first run-in with the law. He was traveling to another ranch as a hired cowboy, and during his trip he was in desperate need of new overalls. But the general store was closed, and annoyed and tired, he forced his way into the store, found his size overalls, helped himself to a piece of pie, 
and he left an IOU note for the shopkeeper that he would repay him when he came back into town. But upon discovery of the trespass, the shopkeeper had the marshal take Robert into custody. And in the end, Robert wasn't charged, and he of course paid for the jeans. But this first encounter with the justice system, at the very least, left the young man with a feeling of persecution. As Robert traveled from ranch to ranch, he began to meet some real hardened cowboys. These older cowboys had been living this hard, lonely life, and many had been rustlers. With the recent completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, the cattle business exploded as shipping them in huge quantities to the East Coast became not only possible, but cheap. Thus, a cowboy's job was to herd thousands and sometimes as many as 16,000 heads of cattle from a ranch across the prairie lands to the train cars so they could be loaded. And as they did this, the huge herd wreaked havoc on the homesteads they trampled across, eating up the prairie grass and gulping up the water holes. This naturally created, at times, very violent altercations between the homesteaders and the cowboys. But sometimes the cowboys would come across some of the homesteaders' cattle who had wandered from the ranch, known as mavericks. These lost cattle, these mavericks, were often rounded up and branded with the new owner's signature so that no one would ever know the difference. This crime was called rustling, and it was punishable by death, which often was accomplished by a noose tied up around the nearest tree. At Marshall Ranch, where Robert Parker was working, this was exactly what was happening. The cowboys at Marshall Ranch would often leave for a few days and return with new cattle for the herd. The leader of this rustling ring was a cowboy named Mike Cassidy. Robert Parker became a protege of Mike Cassidy. He taught him not only cowboy craft, but also how to shoot a revolver. He even went so far as to gift Robert his own saddle and six-shooter. To this young man from Mormon country, Cassidy's stories of shootouts and dive saloons and dancing girls were like mythical adventures beckoning him into a wider world. And one day... Robert finally approached his mother, quotes, Ma, I'm leaving bright and early in the morning. There's not much for me here. No future. Pay in Utah's low. You know that. Maybe 20 or $30 a month with board, and the board's not much to brag about in most places. There's no excitement around here. I'm not a kid anymore. Gotta be thinking about my future. I look at the struggle you and Dad have had, and it don't look very good to me. Always somebody to cheat you out of what you've got coming, like the time you lost the homestead. If it ain't some righteous saint getting the best of you, then it's the weather that's against you, freezing the stock or crops. I can't do it. I've got to get into something that brings me hard, solid gold in my hand. Thought maybe I could get a job and tell a ride in the mines. End quote. Robert's mother, Anna, pleaded with her son to wait for his father to come home so that he could discuss the matter with him. But Robert had made up his mind and was adamant that he must leave the next morning. Tom Hatch, author of The Last Outlaws, tells us that at dawn, Robert Leroy Parker hopped into the saddle of his mare, Babe, with his colt, Corning, on a lead rope. He gently nudged Babe to begin walking away from his home, walking slowly, alongside the poplar trees that he helped his mother plant. And Anna watched her son ride off into the wilderness as long as she could, but had to turn away when baby Lula began crying. And as she did... She probably wondered if she would ever see her oldest child again. When Robert's father came home, he knew there must have been something driving his son away, and upon investigation, sure enough, he found that Robert had been implicated in rustling. Robert Parker made for Telluride, Colorado, a gold mining town described by a contemporary as a town full of, quote, saloons, gambling dives, dance halls, and boardwalk sidewalks where thousands of strange, crazy people pulled amazing scads of money out of their pockets and tried to gamble it off or throw it away on drinks and dance hall girls as fast as they could, and who tricked, robbed, shot, and stabbed each other to an amazing extent. End quote. Robert, no doubt, imbibed in the amoral pleasures of Telluride, spending his earnings in excess, but it should also be noted that he sent money back home as well. It wasn't long before he found himself in trouble with the law again. A rancher, who agreed to pasture his colt, Cornish, asked Robert if he could buy him. When Robert refused, the rancher went to the sheriff and accused Robert of stealing his horse. Robert had no way to immediately prove that the horse was his, so he was thrown in jail. And someone apparently wired his father, Maximilian, letting him know that his son was in trouble. Maximilian traveled to Telluride to help his son and found him reclining in an unlocked cell, reading a magazine. His astonished father said, quote, this is the first time I've ever heard of a prisoner being imprisoned behind an open cell door, 
end quote. And Robert said that he had promised the authorities that he wouldn't try to escape, and they apparently believed him. Robert was eventually acquitted for any wrongdoing, and his father pleaded with his son to return home, that his mother was depressed at his absence. Robert said that he couldn't, and he handed his father a wad of cash instead. And his father replied, quote, Your mother will appreciate the money, but it's no substitute for you. End quote. Later, in 1889, still in Telluride, Robert became friends with a former horse thief turned horse racer named Matt Warner. Matt was impressed by Robert's unrivaled skills with horses, and so he hired him to be his jockey. One race put Robert riding Mac's horse Betty against a Ute tribe's prized horse named Whiteface. The winner got the other's horse. Parker smoked the Ute competition, but when it came time to settle up, the Utes refused to give up their beloved horse. The Utes went for their weapons, but the white men beat them on the draw. Both parties backed away from each other without incident, but Warner and his gang made off with their prize. The next day, the Utes caught up with Warner's gang again to retrieve their horse, and as one of Warner's men tried to explain to them that the horse was won fair and square, one of the Utes leveled his Winchester at a man named Tom McCarty, but McCarty cleared leather first and he shot the Ute dead off of his horse. The Utes quietly loaded their dead companion onto one of their horses and slinked away, and this incident seriously affected Robert Parker. His sister Lula said, quote, This went against Bob's grain. Killing wasn't part of the game for him, and he was sick inside. End quote. After spending all their race winnings, Tom McCarty, Matt Warner, and Robert Parker discussed what they would do next to earn some cash. McCarty presented the idea of some sort of raid, as he put it. On March 30th, 1889, three well-dressed men entered a Denver bank and sat down with the manager to, presumably, discuss making a deposit. One man placed a vial of clear liquid on the bank manager's desk, and he told him that it was nitroglycerin and that he would appreciate it if the manager would hand over everything he had in the vault. The bank manager, unwilling to experience temperatures similar to the surface of the sun, happily produced $21,000 in cold, hard cash. To this day, nobody knows who committed this robbery, but it has always been attributed to McCarty, Warner, and Robert Parker. But in June of 1889, we do have Robert Parker's first confirmed bank robbery. In Telluride, four men rode up to the bank. Three entered, leaving their horses outside in the care of the fourth. One man approached the teller, handed him a check, and as the teller examined the check, the man pressed the teller's face down on the counter and put a gun to his head. Within seconds, they ran out with over $20,000, and as they left town, they fired off their guns and rode into the wilderness, hooting and hollering. However, on their way back to their hideout, they passed somebody who recognized them, and this chance passing branded the four men forever as outlaws. But for the moment, they weren't concerned with their career prospects. They had a posse after them. But this gang was ready for a chase, and they set up relay stations of fresh horses tied to trees waiting for them. With the outlaws' fresh horses setting a new pace, the tired horses of the posse fell further behind. And finally, nearing a town that they could hide out in, Robert Parker and company grabbed a stray pony and tied some branches to its tail to widen its path and sent it off running in another direction. And the posse took the bait and lost their quarry. But making it to the mountains of southwestern Colorado, they caught sight of another posse on the horizon. This posse was from Utah and also on the hunt for the Telluride bank robbers. Matt Warner recounted, quote, From then on, it was hell proper. It wasn't the case of just one outfit of deputies trailing us, but posses was out scouring the whole country, and we was running into fresh outfits every little while and had to suddenly change our direction or dodge into a rock or timber hideout or backtrack or follow long strips of bare sandstone where we wouldn't leave our tracks or wade up and down streams long distances so they would lose our tracks. End quote. The posses eventually gave up their chase, and Warner, Parker, and the others found refuge in the infamous outlaw hangout of Browns Park with the Bassett family ranch. Around this time, Robert Parker caught up with his brother Dan, who informed him that everybody back home in Circleville, Utah, had heard of his part in the Telluride bank robbery, that he was now infamous. Robert was devastated that he had brought such infamy upon his humble and devout Mormon family. And so, forever after... Robert Leroy Parker assumed a nickname in homage to the man who first taught him how to rustle, Butch Cassidy. As Butch Cassidy was forging his life as a Colorado outlaw, another young man had recently moved to Colorado. Harry Longbaugh had grown up in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and worked as a canal driver. 
He came from a devout Baptist family, but Harry, being an avid reader of the romantic dime novels of the Western Cowboy, he decided to move to Colorado and work on his cousin's ranch and become a cowboy. He quickly gained a reputation for having a rock-solid work ethic and a naturally skilled horseman at that. Soon, Harry Longbaugh had acquired the full gear of the Western Cowboy. The Cowboy of the late 1800s wore loose-fitting shirts for comfort and heavy-duty woolen pants reinforced with buckskin. Their boots were pointed at the toe to help them slip into the stirrups easier. The heel was raised up to keep the foot in place while riding. Boots were always custom-made, costing a month's wages. The wide-brimmed hat that they wore offered shade from the sun and protection from rain or branches. Leather chaps were also a necessity to protect them from brambles and thickets while riding. Most cowboys never carried a gun, but if they did, it was high on the hip, not low like in the movies. And finally, they all carried a bandana for protection from dust or sunburns, or to use as earmuffs, or even as a tourniquet in case of injury or snakebite. Their everyday work was 14 hours with cows, transporting, branding, doctoring, herding, and protecting them from rustlers. They were always young and single wanderers, and most quit after one season. Author Tom Hatch says the cowboy, quote, ruled over the cows and put those beasts through paces they did not want to go through, like chasing them from pasture to pasture, whooping and hollering and swinging a rope in their faces, or cramming medication down their throats when needed, or notching their ears and sticking a hot poke around their hide for identification, or lopping off their horns or other parts of the body more private and personal. The cowboy was required to do these necessary things because a cow could not be trained or bribed or coaxed or reasoned with. Quite frequently, the cow sought revenge. It would target the cowboy to stomp, gore, kick, trample, or whip with its tail without the slightest provocation or twinge of conscience or fear of retaliation. It was difficult to work around cattle for long without developing a complete vocabulary of colorful curse words and phrases. But the benefits, in addition to the pay of 30 to $40 a month, included the satisfaction that the job was meaningful, that food was being provided for hungry people. The cowboy was his own boss, able to come and go as he pleased from job to job, he was also privileged to breathe the fresh air and feast his eyes daily on the scenes of natural beauty that most people only dreamed about. Cowboys were truly alive to the sights, smells, and sounds of the outdoors, preferring this free-roaming lifestyle to one among those who marched through life in step at society's pace. End quote. As 1886 transitioned to 1887, an unprecedented and devastating winter killed off most of the cattle herds in the West, as much as 90%. This left many cowboys out of work and desperate. And it was during this dreadful time that Harry Longbaugh committed his first crime by stealing a horse, saddle, and gun from a ranch in Sundance, Wyoming. Before this theft, Harry Longbaugh spent over a year in prison where he became known as the Sundance Kid. The Sundance Kid, sitting in prison, not only became a professional thief, but was also, just like Butch Cassidy, accused of all sorts of other crimes that he had nothing to do with before his capture. He even wrote an open letter to the local newspaper attacking them for their shoddy journalism. A thief he may have been, but a liar he was not. After Harry's release, he lived a life of anonymity, working as a cowboy here and there, and he was always well-liked, although his sullen and quiet nature often drew suspicion. But he became something of a hero when he saved a fellow cowboy's life by venturing out into a blizzard in a seemingly hopeless search for the lost worker. And he found the man and he returned him safely against all odds. The kid made his way to Miles City, Montana, a hangout for cowboys looking for work. And there, his blonde hair, blue eyes, trimmed mustache, and fashionable clothing made him particularly popular with the local ladies who he spent plenty of time with. And he passed the winter playing cards, becoming an exceptional gambler. He also met a man named Bill Madden, who was more than likely the fourth man in the Telluride robbery with Robert Parker. Harry and Bill decided that they would make an extra buck by robbing a train. And rob a train they did. And I don't have to bother describing it. Just imagine every train robbery scene in any classic Western, and that's exactly what happened. But afterwards, Bill Madden was caught. He gave the authorities the name of his accomplice, Harry Longbaugh. And from thenceforward, the Sundance Kid became his outlaw alias to protect his identity. But before Sundance went back into a life of crime, he would try his hand one more time at living an honest life. As Butch Cassidy was traveling between Wyoming and Colorado, he bought a ranch with a friend to pasture his stolen cattle on. But not all of his doings were illicit. 
One family ranch, the Simpsons, were friendly with Butch Cassidy, and the territory surrounding the Simpson Ranch got hit bad by the influenza epidemic of 1889. Mrs. Simpson developed a potent natural remedy for the flu out of herbs, and Butch delivered Mrs. Simpson's flu remedy as far as 25 miles away to sick families. When the flu struck the Simpson household and the herbal remedies failed, he rode his horse 120 miles round trip to get medicine from a doctor. Despite his medicine rides, Butch's rustling ranch drew suspicion from everyone. He was sure making a lot more money than his neighbors for being in the same business as they were, and he was burning through cash at the gambling tables. And finally, hearing that a posse was organized to arrest him, he sold the ranch and made a break for it. But he was eventually captured, and during his arrest, one of the marshals put a revolver to Butch's stomach and pulled the trigger. The gun misfired, but the marshal kept clicking the trigger until the fourth round fired and grazed Butch's head. His trial was delayed due to trouble in finding witnesses to testify against the affable Butch Cassidy. And so, during the delay, Butch was freed, required only to return to stand trial for his future court date. And during this time, he took a job as a stagecoach guard with his Colt 45 and a bottle of Old Crow at his side. And there exists a tale that, during this waiting period, Butch took a trip down to San Antonio, Texas, to visit the famous Fanny Porter brothel, which not only was a favorite hangout for outlaws, but lawmen as well. There, it said he came upon a girl who was only 16 years old, and Butch's conscience apparently got the best of him. Deciding she was too young for such a profession, he convinced her to travel with him to Wellington, Utah, where he found a good Mormon family to take her in. And true to his word, Butch Cassidy returned to Lander, Wyoming to face justice. His lawyer, who also happened to moonlight as a cattle rustler, was a friend named Douglas Preston. Preston had once found himself losing a bar fight until Butch Cassidy came to his aid, and so he promised Butch that if he ever needed an attorney, he would be there for him. And this time around, with the help of Preston, Butch Cassidy was acquitted. But the prosecutor immediately put together another case that, honestly, could probably be construed as double jeopardy. There's evidence that in this second trial, the jury may have been illegally persuaded to decide for the prosecution. Whatever the reasons behind this trial, Butch was convicted. One night while waiting to be transported to the state penitentiary, Butch asked the jail deputy if he could let him out of his cell for one night, that he had some business to attend to out of town, and that he'll be back by dawn. The deputy summoned the court clerk and passed on Butch's request. The clerk told the deputy that if Butch Cassidy gave him his word, he would keep it. And sure enough, Butch Cassidy faithfully returned from doing God knows what the very next morning. When he arrived at the prison gates, the warden demanded to know why Butch Cassidy was the only prisoner not wearing leg shackles. And Butch Cassidy spoke up, quote, Honor among thieves, I suppose. End quote. Convict number 187 now started his two-year sentence of hard labor, where he would receive a professional education in crime. The most proficient men in putting outlaws behind bars in these wild days were the Pinkertons, or more formally, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. They were formed in 1852 as brutal, effective, and tireless hunters of outlaws for the right price. They even went so far as to plant undercover agents among cowboy rustling outfits. But they especially loved train robbers because the railroad owners were prepared to spend any amount of money to capture these thieves. Founder Alan Pinkerton was so successful with his organization that Abraham Lincoln tapped him to form the first spy agency for the United States. Both the Secret Service and the FBI can trace their origins to Pinkerton. And like any reputable, secretive law enforcement organization, the Pinkertons were not above breaking the law themselves. Voter fraud, jury tampering, bribery, intimidation of witnesses, and murder were just some of their tactics. One thing is for sure, they almost always got their man for their well-paying clients. As the Sundance Kid was trying to forge a straight life under the name of Harry Alonzo in the mid-1890s, the Pinkertons were closing in on him. Harry Alonzo was a tall, strong, handsome, smart, and all-too-quiet man. His history was shrouded in mystery, and the Pinkertons loved looking more closely at guys like this, for there were a lot of train robbers at large. With six months left on his prison term, Butch Cassidy petitioned the Wyoming governor for an early release for good behavior. And to the surprise of everyone, the governor granted Butch a personal interview where it said that he told the outlaw, quote, You're still young and smart enough to make a success in almost any line. Will you give me your word that you'll quit rustling? End quote. Butch Cassidy, with his playfully honest nature, replied, quote, Can't do that, governor, because if I give you my word, I'd only have to break it. I'm in too deep now to quit the game. 
But I'll promise you one thing. If you give me a pardon, I'll keep out of Wyoming. End quote. And the governor granted Butch Cassidy his pardon. And the first thing Butch Cassidy did after walking out of prison a free man was buy himself a brand new Colt 45. Soon he found one of his friends in legal trouble for a shootout that left some men dead. And Butch told him not to worry that he had an excellent lawyer and that he would rob a bank to help cover his legal fees. And so it was that in Montpelier, Idaho, four masked men led by Butch Cassidy walked into a bank with guns drawn and politely ordered everyone up against the wall while they cleaned out the vault. Butch even chastised one of his men for being too rough with one of the bank tellers. As quick as they came, they were gone, and they rode to a relay station that had fresh horses waiting for them. And of course, a posse went after them, but was no match for the fresh horses. And this was a signature Butch Cassidy bank robbery, efficient, polite, and well-planned. In 1896, Butch Cassidy made his way back to Browns Park Valley and the Bassett family ranch. The Bassetts were friends to all sorts of outlaws, and Browns Park in general was a place a lawman would rarely venture. The Bassetts were holding an enormous Thanksgiving dinner for their unsavory friends, and Butch Cassidy wanted to be there with the closest thing he had to a family. And at the party was another outlaw who knew the Pinkertons were hot on his trail, and it was, of course, the Sundance Kid. After some time in Browns Park, Butch and Sundance went their separate ways, committing various larcenies. And Butch and his guys always staged well-planned operations that bore his distinct finesse. But the various outlaws that Sundance was with, well, their capers were always clumsier, and there were razor-thin escapes. And more and more, Sundance found himself having to shoot his way out of a situation. He was so desperate at one point, being on the run from a posse for several days without sleep and no horse to ride since it had been shot out from under him, that he broke into a general store and forced the owner at gunpoint to give him food and water. And he ordered the shopkeeper to let him rest in his attic for three days, and that he wouldn't hurt him. And the shopkeeper obliged. But Sundance grew tired of these near-death experiences and made his way to the infamous remote dwelling of Butch Cassidy's gang, the Hole in the Wall. The Hole in the Wall is a rock formation in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming, and surrounded by breathtaking mesas and rocky trails was a lonely cabin that became a favorite meeting place of various cattle rustlers and train robbers that collectively became known as the Wild Bunch Gang. And their leader was without a doubt Butch Cassidy. These men were mostly former cowboys, and many put out of work by the wicked winter of 86 and 87. They had all formed some sort of outlaw career on their own, and yet they were all strangely loyal to each other. Though they committed crimes for sometimes pennies, there's no record of any one of them turning each other in for reward money. These were hard men. Being a cowboy to begin with was excruciating, backbreaking, lonely, quiet work, and sometimes in frigid sub-zero temperatures or blazing hot sun of the open desert. And it took a hard body and mind to do this work. And harder still was the body and mind that made the transition to an outlaw. These men had nothing to lose. They dug their spurs into the flanks of their horses and rode like hell was behind them. They drank themselves under the table. They gambled their ill-gotten gains away as quick as they came. And they carried Colt 45s and Winchester rifles and would not hesitate for a second to draw on any lawman who might turn them in for a bounty. Some of them, to put it simply, were cold-blooded killers. And introducing these guys is all too reminiscent of that scene in Goodfellas when Ray Liotta walks us around the lounge room. There was Flat-Nosed Curry, whose nose was said to be so flat that his eyelids stuck out farther than the bridge of his nose, and he had an itchy trigger finger and is said to have taken the lives of nine lawmen. Then there was News Carter, a drunkard who got his name because he loved seeing his own name in the papers. Next was Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick, and at six feet two inches, Ben was friendly and not as eager to take a life of some of his fellow Wild Bunch members. After him, you have Harry Tracy, whose list of crimes included kidnapping and murder. Patrick Swede Johnson, who, despite the nickname, was not Swedish. He was someone you'd want on your side in a gunfight. Then there was Deaf Charlie Hanks, who got the name because he was deaf in one ear. Deaf Charlie was a seasoned veteran whose body was covered in scars from bullets and knives. You also have Laughing Sam Carey, who got his nickname because he never smiled. When he arrived at Hole in the Wall, he had three bullets inside his body. The gang helped him extract the lead, and he was helping them with their next caper a week later. Finally... It was Harvey Logan. Harvey was a killer who didn't fear death, and everyone stayed out of his way. It said there were as many as a hundred who came in and out of the hole in the wall, but generally Butch had around ten guys at any given time. The newest addition was the fast-drawing Sundance Kid. Before long, Sundance became Cassidy's most trusted gun in the Wild Bunch. 
Author Tom Hatch does a great job of summing up why the pair got along so well. Quote, Both had been raised in strict religious households and valued their families, but had become estranged due to their criminal ways. Each of them had gone to work away from home at a young age to help support their families. Sundance on the canal and the horse farm, and Bush learning the cowboy trade. They had not only later worked as regular cowboys herding cattle, but had specialized in wrangling horses, probably spending much of their careers inside a corral, breaking, training, and caring for those animals, as they had pushing cows. They had each served an 18-month prison sentence for horse stealing. Both were well-read, as evidenced by Sundance's childhood affinity for books and Butch's regular use of the Bassett Library when he worked on the ranch. They also shared a fondness for the proverbial nightlife of wine, women, song, and gambling, and could discuss larceny at length like others discuss sporting events. And they say that opposites attract. Butch was usually cheery, whereas Sundance was often moody, and each appreciated the other for the perspective provided by his individual outlook. And unlike Harvey Logan or Sweet Johnson... Neither man believed in indiscriminately killing another human being. End quote. Unlike most outlaw gangs, Butch Cassidy ran his as something of a democracy. He sought input from everyone as he created a master plan and then put it into strict execution, which always involved as little violence as possible. He and Sundance had thus far in their careers never taken a life, and they intended to keep it that way. As it is with any famous outlaw, and as it had been for both Butch and Sundance prior to the Wild Bunch gang, the more famous the gang became, the more crimes had become attributed to them that they probably had nothing to do with. And one of the best ways to tell if it was a Butch Cassidy caper was to look at who got robbed. If the innocent bystanders were molested and pilfered along with the vault or the train hall, then it was more than likely not his. Nonetheless, the governors of the western states had had enough of the wild bunch and were gearing up for an all-out war against them. But bigger fish to fry came in the way of a real war. On April 24, 1889, the United States declared war on Spain over Cuban independence, and the Wild Bunch gang even met to discuss joining the military to aid their country. No, it wasn't entirely out of patriotism. They thought perhaps they could strike some sort of amnesty agreement for their service. But as far as we know, nothing formal came out of this meeting. Some Wild Bunch members, however, did enlist, probably to avoid arrest. In the Philippines, the United States Army had a problem with transporting supplies through a region controlled by an Islamic tribe called the Moros. They were a ferocious people in war, and if caught, the western soldier would be taken into the jungle, tortured, and likely cooked to death over a fire. Their fierceness as soldiers is legendary. Some of the Wild Bunch gang was given the unenviable task of securing the Moros region, and after battling the Wild Bunch, the Moros were forced to relinquish their territory. They had met their match. On June 2nd, 1889, the Overland Flyer Limited was stopped by a couple of men waving lanterns. The conductor, fearing that there was something wrong with the track, made a full stop. As soon as he did, the Wild Bunch climbed aboard. The outlaws, ignoring wallets and purses of the passengers, made straight for the express car that they knew held a safe. They knocked on the door and asked the clerk inside to open up. The clerk, a man named Charles E. Woodcock, being the good clerk that he was, refused to open the door. And so dynamite was placed at the door to blow it open. But somebody miscalculated the charge, and the car was blown completely up and shredded to bits. Woodcock was knocked out, but alive, relatively unharmed. Once they revived Woodcock, they ordered him to open the safe. And again, he refused. So they blew it open, revealing nearly $50,000 worth of cash, gold, diamonds, and other valuables. And then the Wild Bunch rode off into the night for their relay stations. Another classic Butch Cassidy robbery. Each member of the Wild Bunch now had a bounty on their heads of $3,000 and the Union Pacific Railroad hired the Pinkertons to track down once and for all Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. One Pinkerton, a man named Frank Murray, approached a rancher named William French and showed him photos of various members of the Wild Bunch. French stopped at a photo of Butch Cassidy, telling Murray that that man was his ranch foreman by the name of Jim Lowe. Murray, stunned that he had just located the infamous Butch Cassidy, retreated the scene as he was not prepared to arrest such a man without backup. Murray, shortly after, was found in a saloon to grab a drink and consider what he should do next. What Pinkerton Murray didn't know was that Cassidy and the Wild Bunch knew that he had located them, and that most of them had decided that killing the lone detective was the best way forward. But Butch Cassidy absolutely forbade them from doing such a thing. And so, the Wild Bunch leader himself approached Murray alone, and he told him how he had just saved his life. And years later in Bolivia... Murray actively misled his fellow Pinkertons to allow Butch Cassidy yet another escape. Despite this narrow success, Butch Cassidy knew his time was running out. As he pondered what he might do next, many of the Wild Bunch gang began falling to the Pinkertons. 
Some were killed in shootouts, many were arrested, most of them received life in prison. So he reached out to an attorney that he knew from Utah, and he asked if there was any way to be granted a pardon in exchange for hanging up his spurs. The lawyer told him no way, that he had robbed too many big-name corporations that had the resources to chase him down to the ends of the earth. But the attorney pitched another idea, something straight out of the movie Catch Me If You Can. He proposed that Butch Cassidy be recruited by the railroads and banks to help secure and guard their vaults against men like himself. And Butch was intrigued, as were the corporations. And a meeting was arranged to discuss the idea at a remote location along the Utah-Wyoming desert. And Butch showed up, but the other side didn't. And spooked and upset at being stood up, he left that option forever behind him. And what he didn't know was that a storm had interfered with the travel of the other party representing the banks and railroads. On August 29, 1900, four passengers stood up on train number three of the Union Pacific. Two of them were Butch and Sundance. The train was forced to a stop, where three more masked men jumped on. They naturally ignored the passengers and made straight for the express car. When they ordered the door be opened, the clerk inside refused, and when they threatened to use dynamite, it slowly slid open. To the amusement of the outlaws, behind the door was none other than Clerk Charles E. Woodcock. After this heist, another perfectly executed bank robbery where Butch and Sundance hadn't even bothered to hide their faces. Everybody already knew who they were, and their reputation preceded them. At one relay station set up for this latest robbery, a rancher's son named Vic Button told Butch that he liked his white horse, and that it was the fastest he'd ever seen. Butch promised the boy that someday the horse would be his. And as Butch and Sundance were running from the posse after them for this latest bank robbery, Butch handed his white horse off to another rancher, and instructed that it be given to Vic Button. Young Vic recounted, quote, For a man when he was crowded by a posse to remember his promise to a kid makes you think he could not have been all that bad. End quote. Butch and Sundance, by this time, were now worth $10,000 apiece, dead or alive. The turn of the century changed everything for the life of an outlaw. They were no longer up against a local county sheriff or marshal or their posses, but professional detectives with more modern technology. The telegraph and telephone allowed central stations to track the movement of outlaws in real time, and improving printing processes allowed photographs and wanted posters to be mass-produced. Banks and railroads began protecting their vaults with soldiers armed with high-powered rifles and deadly training, and Butch and Sundance could feel the noose around their necks. The game they had always played was drastically turned against them. They both knew that if they continued down this path, they would either end up dead or in prison like so many of their friends, or, worse, be forced to finally take a human life in some desperate shootout. The pair determined that they had to leave the country if they were going to start a new life where the Pinkertons couldn't reach them. And so they set their eyes on South America. But before they left, they stopped in Fort Worth, Texas for the wedding of a fellow Wild Bunch member, News Carter. And there, Butch Cassidy... Sundance, Harvey Logan, Ben Kilpatrick, and News Carver stood for what became a famous photograph of the well-dressed outlaws. After the wedding, with trains and banks now impenetrable, and Pinkertons tightening the noose around what was left of the Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance, and Sundance's romantic interest at a place, boarded a steamship for about as far away from the American West as they could get, Patagonia, Chile, near the southern tip of South America. The trio arrived in Argentina on March 23, 1901, where Sundance deposited $12,000 into a local bank, and he reportedly inquired about the security of his funds and how it would be protected from robbers. Down in Patagonia, they found and purchased 25,000 acres of beautiful pasture nestled between the sea and mountains. The lush grasslands were perfect for raising cattle. The neighbors were few and far between, and there were no telegraph wires. It was the perfect place to disappear into obscurity. And Butch and Sundance were well-liked by the locals. They handed out gold to the poor, and Butch always, as usual, had a pocket full of candy for the kids. The ranch was successful, and they were at long last making their new life as honest men. On their ranch, they built cabins and outbuildings in American Western style. And Sundance and Etta Place began referring to themselves as husband and wife. But in February 1905, two well-dressed American men entered a bank and robbed it of $100,000 and then vanished into the countryside. Everything about the caper looked like vintage Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and everyone at the time thought it was indeed them, the Pinkertons included. What Butch and Sundance didn't know was that the Pinkertons had bribed postal workers to let them check incoming mail to the outlaws' families' homes. 
Through private correspondence with loved ones in Utah and Pennsylvania, they learned that the outlaws had settled down as ranchers in Chile. When the Argentinian authorities notified the Pinkertons of the bank robbery, they were positive Butch and Sundance had struck again. But a careful examination of the witness accounts reveals that the descriptions of the robbers don't match up to Butch and Sundance all that well. On top of this, there are quite a few records, including an agricultural census, as well as a bill of sale that put Butch and Sundance at their ranch during this robbery, 750 miles away. The local sheriff was wired in order to arrest the pair, but decided to warn them to flee instead, and he later lost his job over this move to protect his friends. And at long last, their attempt at a straight life was over. They had to now walk away from five years of beautiful country, a booming business, cherished friends, and all their hard work. And it was about this time that Butch Cassidy's beloved mother, Ann Parker, who had watched her son leave on horseback, so many years earlier, finally passed away. That moment was the last memory mother and son had of each other. By the end of the year, Butch, Sundance, and Etta Place, along with another unknown, were positively identified as robbing a bank in central Argentina. As they fled, a chasing posse let off a lucky shot, hitting one of them. Etta Place, the love of Sundance's life, had appeared into the history books from complete obscurity. No historian knows where she came from, or if Etta Place is even her real name. And after this bank robbery in Argentina, she disappears forever back into obscurity. It's thought that perhaps she tired of the outlaws and went back home, but author Tom Hatch puts forward the theory that she may have been mortally wounded in this last caper, that she was the one who was hit by that lucky shot. As far as historians can tell, Butch and Sundance never mention her again. By 1906, Butch and Sundance assumed aliases and found work around the Bolivian tin mines, working for Clement Rolla Glass and Percy Siebert from the beginning of this story. As security guards for Glass, Butch and Sundance were able to sniff out coming holdups, and they were always quicker on the draw than there would be robbers. Often, Butch Cassidy would give the robbers cash from his own pocket or buy them a meal so long as they promised to leave the area. American newspapers, on the other hand, were publishing far more outlandish accounts of the pair's activities than reality. Murder, along with brazen carriage robberies, making off with piles of gold, all lies written to sell newspapers. Inexorably, the Pinkertons were catching up with Butch and Sundance at the tin mines. And so again, they were off to whatever sad chapter was next. More and more robberies and holdups by pairs of English-speaking men were popping up all over South America, and all being the work of Butch and Sundance is nearly impossible. On November 4th, two men, identified as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, politely robbed a payroll cart near a mine in southern Bolivia. The payroll escorts weren't lifted of their personal belongings. Only the payroll cash and mule were taken. The guards had no doubt about who these polite banditos Yankees were. When they reached their destination, they notified the sheriff who put the robbery out on the telegraph wire, burning up the lines. He also put on blast where he thought they were heading. After three days and 30 miles from the site of the robbery, nearly 15,000 feet up in the Cordillera Occidental Mountains, the outlaws found the city of San Vicente, and they located a resident who was willing to give them room and board for the night. Exhausted, it's said that Butch and Sundance left their horses and guns outside and crashed for the evening. Their host had already received word to be on the lookout for two Americans with a mule, and so he snuck away to alert the authorities. A Bolivian army patrol, already looking for the bandits, responded and surrounded the home where the Americans were sleeping. An army officer named Victor Torres snuck up to the house, and Butch Cassidy was roused from slumber, probably by hearing the army assemble outside. As Torres quietly approached, Butch shot a bullet through Torres's neck and killed him. An enormous firefight broke out between the Americans and the Bolivian patrol, and even the citizens got in on the fight. One version of the gunfight has the Sundance Kid dashing out into the courtyard to retrieve their ammo and rifles, but was shot up by the guard. Butch Cassidy then ran out to rescue his friend, dragging him back to the hacienda, riddled with bullets. The actual events of the gunfight are poorly documented, and much of what we know is reliant on sources who are not actually there. It's believed that after about a half an hour, the shooting stopped and a standoff began, and the army waited all night for the Americans to surrender. Finally, at 6 a.m., an army captain with another soldier entered the hacienda. A local miner remembers what they found inside. Quote, the captain entered with a soldier, and then all of us entered and found the smaller gringo stretched out on the floor, dead, with one bullet in the temple and another in the arm. The taller was hugging a large ceramic jug that was in the room. He was dead, also, with a bullet wound in the forehead and several in his arm. End quote. It appears that 
Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid preferred to take their own lives rather than lose it to the Bolivian Army or the Pinkertons or to be captured and spend the rest of their lives rotting away in prison. The guard from the payroll mule robbery identified the two men as the same ones who had robbed him. And on November 7th, 1908, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were tossed in a couple of unmarked graves in an Indian cemetery in San Vicente, and they would have been 42 and 41, respectively. American newspapers hailed the death of the outlaws, and it didn't take long for the news to reach the devastated families of Robert Leroy Parker and Harry Longbaugh of their fates. Finally, after so many years of enduring painful reports of their beloved sons, the good Mormon Parkers and the good Baptist Longbaughs could close a sad chapter in their lives. This deadly shootout in Bolivia is famously known as the downfall of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But that is not the end of the story. Though the Bolivians had concluded that the men in the shootout were the payroll robbers, they hadn't identified them as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid specifically. They, in fact, never officially claimed it was them. And for years, from Canada down to Chile, there had been all sorts of heists attributed to Butch Cassidy that he never had anything to do with. The Bolivians themselves may not have even believed their own rumors. In May of 1913, an American carpenter named Jim Lowe, which was one of Butch's aliases, was arrested in South America on suspicion of being the infamous outlaw who was supposed to be dead. The carpenter was eventually set free. It's also worth noting that the Pinkertons never bought that Butch Cassidy or Sundance died in the shootout in Bolivia. To this day, they have not officially declared them dead. There is also the uncharacteristic Butch shooting first part of the story. That just was never his style his whole life. It would have been a first time for him. And he and Sundance, both with devout religious roots, never were and never wanted to be killers. In 1991, renowned forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow led a project to exhume the remains of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in Bolivia. They found only one skeleton, but one who matched the physical appearance of Sundance. But DNA evidence ruled out any relation to either outlaw. It was later proven to be the remains of a German prospector. In the 1950s, Josie Bassett of the Bassett family ranch in Browns Park, who was very likely a lover of Cassidy's, recalls Butch visiting her as late as 1930. When she was challenged on her story, she said, quote, I know Butch Cassidy a hell of a lot better than I know you. And he was here in 1930. End quote. But the most remarkable testimony of Butch Cassidy surviving well after the Bolivian shootout came from none other than his baby sister Lula. Quote, One day in 1925, I know it was in the fall just before school started, some of my brothers were out on the range with the stock. My brother Mark was fixing the fence at the range when a new black Ford drove up, the kind with the old hissing glass shades that you snapped on in a rainstorm. Mark looked up and surmised it was a cousin, Fred Levi, the Levi boys were cattle buyers, and Mark supposed he was coming for that purpose. The man walked across the field toward Mark. As he came near, his face broke into a characteristic Parker grin, and at first Mark was puzzled. He studied the face and suddenly realized it could be but one person, Bob Parker. After a few moments of visiting, the two climbed into the shiny car and drove to the brick house in town. Bob didn't know the family had moved into town, so he naturally would have gone straight to the ranch. That was home to him. Dad, 81, was sitting on the step by the kitchen door of the brick house, enjoying the shade in the late afternoon calm. The flashy car drove into the yard, and Mark stepped out. Rather slowly, the driver slipped out of the left side of the car and straightened up. At first, Dad wondered who it was. Bob's face, for once, was solemn. Perhaps he wondered how he would be accepted. The screen door to the kitchen was open, behind Dad's back. Bob took off his hat, twirled it through the door, and it landed squarely on the post of the rocking chair inside. Then he grinned, that unmistakable grin. And Dad knew him. No one could describe that meeting after all the years of uncertainty and separation. Forty-one years. That reunion proved the strength of Dad's heart. He survived it. Lula, this is Leroy. End quote. Lula goes on to detail her big brother's travels after Bolivia and finally tells us that Robert Leroy Parker died in the Pacific Northwest in the fall of 1937. She had promised him that she would not reveal where he was buried. Quote, All his life he was chased, 
Now he has a chance to rest in peace. And that is the way it must be. Well, look down yonder, Gabriel. Put your feet on the land and see. But Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet till you hear from me. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise straight out the ground. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Mm. Well, meet me, Jesus, meet me. Meet me in the middle of the air. And if these wings don't fail me, well, I'll meet you anywhere. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise straight out the ground. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down mm-hmm. well meet me mother father meet me down the river road and mama you know that I'll be there when I check in my load ain't no grave I'm gonna hold my body down Ain't no grave Gonna hold my body down When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise straight out the ground Ain't no grave Gonna hold my body down Play a little something, take us out now I had never really believed the theory that Butch and Sundance had made it out of Bolivia alive, but after reading Lula's account, it's hard for me to believe that all of that is made up. If you enjoy that episode or any of my episodes, I would very much appreciate you heading over to patreon.com slash writteninbloodhistory and becoming a patron of the show. If you have at least a dollar to spare, your dollar is very much appreciated by me. I have many expenses associated with production and research material, and the patrons are the ones that help me offset all those costs. Another way you can help me out is by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen. As an independent podcaster, I talk to a bunch of other independent podcasters, and I really mean it when I say that when we see a nice review or rating uh, below our show, it just makes our day. It puts smiles on our faces. So if you could, even if you don't review my show, take your favorite podcast and give it a review. The incredible music for this episode, the cover of Ain't No Grave, was by a man named Marty Ray. And you can find him on YouTube at the Marty Ray Project. And I'll include a link to that in my show notes. But he was so kind enough to let me use his version of this song. And what's really cool is when I went through his YouTube channel after he gave me permission, there's a really neat video on there where uh, he took Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby and turned it into a version that I guarantee you've never heard before. And there's an awesome video of him singing it for Vanilla Ice. So I highly recommend checking it out. It's super cool. And Marty Ray also has a podcast uh, where they talk about all things music that I'll include a link to as well in the show notes. And as usual, I need to thank my sister Courtney for doing the awesome cover art for this show. You can find her work at cjdejulius.myportfolio.com. So if you're in need of some freelance artwork, she's the person to go to. She does an excellent job. And finally, if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at sdejulius, or shoot me a message on the Facebook page there. That goes right to my phone. I'll see that instantly. And so thank you very, very much for listening to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and I will see you guys later. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, 
The United States is locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. Hey, 